Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning, everyone. Am I on here? We are going to be continuing our series that we started last week. We get a volume. Am I on? Yeah, good. We're going to be continuing a series I started last week called Soul Food, and, and so today is, is Soul Food Part 2, and so we're taking a look at, at the Bible, and we started by talking about why we should read the Bible, uh, the value and treasure it holds for our daily living. We talked about the importance of being nourished by the Word of God, and we said it's essential that as Christians we read the Word regularly if we are to grow and mature in the Lord. D.L. Moody, the famous American evangelist, said this, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning, but faith did not seem to come. Then one day I read in the tenth tenth chapter of Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study, and faith has been growing ever since. And so we talked about, again, why we should read the Bible, and then we spent some time, we talked about what the Bible is. We looked at what it is spiritually, inspired by God, God God-breathed, and then what it is materially in terms of of authorship and time span written, uh, the books it's composed of, the different types of writings. We learned it contains 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. We learned about the many different authors, 40 or so from many different walks of life, and that we learned it was written over about a 1,500-year time span. We learned that the Bible is filled with books that are epistles or letters, gospels, poetry, history, prophecy, law. We learned it's it's the Word of God It's man-written, but it's God-breathed. So again, this will be a teaching and a preaching. There'll be lots of information, but it is relevant and practical information. And it's needed if we build a foundational understanding. The Bible is an ancient text, and so there's certain things we need to know to be able to read it and apply it properly. If you weren't here last week, uh, we have a podcast that you can subscribe to. If you just go and search for SCCC, you can find us in podcast. If you go to sccc.org, that's our website, and you can listen online as well that way. Uh, Or if you're on Facebook, you can watch the live stream of the service, and you can see the audio and the video. So there are different ways um, going forward. If you you hear a sermon and you 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 yourself want to see it again, or if you had kids' church, or if you want to share it with somebody, there's three different ways that that you can listen again. So there's three definitions for us to begin with. Uh, I want to look at inerrancy. It's the view that when all facts become known, they will demonstrate the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. In other words, the Bible speaks to all of humanity across all disciplines, and it's proven itself again and again to be reliable, true, and applicable when understood. It's infallible, infallibility. This means when infallibility is applied to the Bible, it means it's fully trustworthy. It means the text does not deceive the reader, and it is the only true source 
source of faith and doctrine. And then finally, authority. Biblical authority is the belief that the Bible, as the expression of God's will to us, possesses the right supremely to define what we are to believe and how we are to conduct ourselves. So the Bible is authoritative because it's God's inspired word to humanity. It's God's inspired word to humanity that reveals God's redemptive plan in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know how important it is to study the scriptures, not just for preachers or missionaries, but for all Christ's followers. So hopefully uh, by now we know what the Bible is in terms of its content, in terms of its purpose and importance. And so we looked at the why and the what. Again, we looked at why we should read it, what it is. And so today we're going to look at how. How to read it and how to apply it. Exegesis and hermeneutics, which are just fancy words to say interpretation and application. Incredibly important, especially in this day and age, that as Christ followers we understand what the Bible teaches. And so at this time we'll dismiss our kids to South Coast Kids, which is relevant always relevant, but particularly so when we talk about reading and understanding the Bible. We need to be prayerful. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us clarity to open our hearts and minds. And so, Father, help us now, God. We know it's, it's hot and humid, and Father, we know that, that uh, you love us, that you want us here, that we know there are people who are here this morning because of the kids and the kids camp, Father, but you knew this morning who would be here and you know why. And so, Father, I particularly pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their trust and faith in Jesus, God, that you do that work that only you could do. That you draw them unto you, God. Your, your word says that your hope is that nobody would perish, would all would come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who know you, God, Help this continue to shore up the foundation, God, to understand the uniqueness and the power that the Bible has. And so, Father, have your way in this service. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, spirits to receive, God, that, that Shema that we hear and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, we looked at why read the Bible. We looked at what the Bible is, and now the how to read and how to apply. Because ultimately we know that it's about applying, not just knowing. We said we read the Bible, the Bible to know God, not just to know about God. There is a difference. We live in a culture filled with people who know all kinds of information about everything. Uh, A.W. Tozer famously said, the, Bible, uh, the devil is a greater theologian than any of us and is a devil still. And so it is different to know about God and then to know God. And so the Bible contains helpful, relevant, practical information for our lives. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That says all scripture, not just the stuff that you understand, not just the stuff that, that's easy to apply, 
but all of Scripture. And it's given to us because it has profit. It's profitable. It, it, has, it, it, has, uh, it helps us to understand, to teach, to rebuke, or to correct, to be trained in righteousness. And there's a reason for that. It says, so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So the idea that is that this application for our own lives to help us, but also to equip us to then do the work, to help us to be ministers. We said a few weeks ago that if you're a Christian, you're a missionary, right? Each of us carry around misconceptions and distortions about God, about ourselves, and about life. And those wrong ideas need to be challenged and changed. And so as a, for instance, if I measure success in life by how much money a person has, or how educated they are, or their position and title in society, but the Bible seems to me measure a person's success by their faithfulness to God, right? We, we know scripture says that God looks at the heart, then my criteria for success has been challenged. And I need to change my definition, and it needs to conform with God's definition. So correction is similar to rebuking, but it focuses on behavior instead of belief. The truth is, all of us lose our way in life sometimes. Amen? Is it just me? And we can easily wander off the course God has for us, and we can end up roaming around in circles. But the Bible corrects us when it gets us back on track in life. When it shows us where we are and how to get back on course with where God wants us to go. So training in righteousness focuses on the Bible's role in helping us live the kind of lives that please God. This assumes a life of integrity and it assumes that that kind of life doesn't come naturally to us that we need help to live the kind of life of integrity that deep down we want to live. And the Bible trains us to do that which we could not do on our own. When Paul says, you know, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do, and the stuff that I want to do, I don't do. And I know the stuff that I want to do, I know that's right, I know that's what I should be doing. And then he says, praise God for Jesus Christ. And we know in Romans 12... Right, We know that the Bible, rather than be conformed to the pattern of the world, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that the Bible will renew our mind. And so again, the purpose of us trying to determine what the Bible says is so we can live it out, not just so we can be smarter than the next person. Christians are really good at repeating scripture, but are we really good at living it out? Let's ask ourselves that. As, we, as you hear this this morning, am I living this out? James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And so we're going to talk about how to read the Bible, and we're going to talk about how to apply the Bible. So there's some helpful hints. Interpret the Bible literally, literally where possible. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. When the literal interpretation of Scripture makes common sense, this will be the correct meaning in almost all cases, unless the facts of the immediate context clearly indicate otherwise. So to interpret the Bible literally means to interpret the Scripture based on the original intent of the author, considering the genre. So in other words, plain speech should be interpreted as plain speech, 
but poetry is poetry, hyperbole is hyperbole, and so on. Scripture is its own best interpreter. The Bible will never contradict itself. Therefore, no part of Scripture can be interpreted, interpreted in a way that will render itself in conflict with what, what is clearly taught elsewhere. So in other words, if the Bible teaches something that seems to be a little unclear about a particular topic in a particular area, find out what the Bible says about that that's maybe clearer in a different part, and it'll illuminate the original text. So again, Scripture is its own best interpreter. Use clearer parts of the text to help determine what the text that is less clear means. So we're going to talk about observation, interpretation, and application. What does it say? What does it mean? And how do I apply it? Incredibly important. For over 33 years, that guiding principle has sat at the heart of the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. We have it at the back table. It's a phenomenal book. It's free right now. Who wants it? Somebody grab it real quick. There you go, Mike Batari. We have some in the back. It's a classic. It's been around since uh, the early 80s. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book, and I would encourage you. It's an excellent guide for biblical interpretation. St. Augustine famously heard the phrase from God repeated and repeated. Take up and read. He heard God tell him, take up and read. This requires much from the reader at two separate levels. First, we must understand what was said to the original audience. That's the there and then. That's the, that's the exegetical. And again, we hear these big words and we get, you know, we get, you know, intimidated sometimes. But very, I'm going to make it as simple as possible. The exegetical or the first level of understanding is simply what was said to the original audience. What did it mean there and then? Then we must learn to hear that same word in the here and now. That's the hermeneutical approach. In other words, the two most important tasks for biblical interpretation is exegesis and hermeneutics. Without them, the reader is lost, and so is the interpretation. This is very, very important because, you know, we, we, we sort of think that, you know, the Bible's, uh, you know, that different people have different interpretations and different understandings, and certainly there are some things that are less clear than others, but the majority of the time... When there's, a, when there's a misunderstanding, it's because either one, the reader is trying to manipulate the text intentionally to have it say something it doesn't say, or they simply haven't been taught how to read the Bible. They haven't been taught, there's a science of Bible reading. It's, it's a book of antiquity, and so there's certain things you must know to read it correctly. When you understand this, when you understand how to read the Bible, and when you come to it without, I mean, none of us can say we're truly objective or not biased, but when you can come to it and, and allow the text to speak to you rather than decide what you want it to say, and then it's remarkably coherent and clear. And again, I cannot overestimate the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of prayer and biblical interpretation. We need to be at a place where we pray to God to illuminate, to make things clear to us. I've seen time and time again men who didn't have their GED or who were barely literate 
you know, and struggled throughout school and weren't good students, eventually get to the place where they could recite and memorize scripture because they committed to it, they were prayerful, and the, the Lord honored that. And I've seen these men then turn into, you know, men who, who could recite scripture, who understood it, who could put together a sermon and preach. So exegesis, the first task, is discovering the original intended meaning of a given text through careful systematic study. It's our primary task. Exegesis is an effort at reaching back into history to the original author and the original audience. Even if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you can still do two critical things that many people neglect. Number one is to read the text carefully, and number two is to ask the right questions of the text. The reality is many people simply do not know how to read well. When you carefully read scripture, you will inevitably ask the right questions of the text. The two basic questions you should ask of every, of, of, uh, every biblical text is context and content. Context questions mine the layers of history, literature, occasion, and purpose. The most important context question is, what is the point? So the goal, ultimately, of exegesis is to find out what the original author intended. Make sure you have a good translation, a good Bible dictionary, good commentaries. You know, most of the time when the Bible is misunderstood, it's because people jump to the hermeneutical task. In other words, people say, what does this say to me here and now? without first understanding what did the Bible say there and then, and you cannot do that. Most misinterpretation comes from that mistake. You can never have scripture mean to you what it didn't mean originally then. You can't make that leap, and when you do that, that's when most uh, misunderstanding and misapplication happens. So some helpful questions to ask. And again, you know, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but it's fundamental, it's important because the authority in this church is the word of God. The authority in this church will always be the word of God. I'm not infallible, Jamie's not infallible. We make mistakes, we will make mistakes. Everything we, sh- we, we say and teach should be looked at against the word of God. And if we say and teach something that doesn't line up, then challenge that. Because it's the word of God that all of us, myself and Pastor Jamie included, are students of. And so, who wrote the passage? Who is speaking? Who is the audience? What's the subject? What's the immediate context? In other words, what's the occasion of the writing? Is it in response to something? You know, what's, what's happening historically when, it, when it's written? When do the events occur? Where does it take place? Why was it written? Many times the author will state their purpose in the text. How? How will these events take place? How do my conclusions compare with others who've studied and commented on the passage? And then how must I apply it to my life? Now, it is, there is great value to understanding that you know, there are great men and women of God who've done amazing scholarship 
but we, we're spiritually lazy and we miss out on the Lord speaking to us when we just rely on, you know, well, this guy's a good teacher and so we know he's going to be solid and so what does he say it means and then just go, okay, that must be what it means. Even if there are trustworthy teachers, that's just spiritual laziness and you lose out when you do that. And so press in for yourself and see what, what you think it, it says based on these questions. And then, it's, then you can go and say, okay, well, what does you know, this teacher think? And see if it lines up. But, you know, study this. If you believe this is God's written word to you, then you should know what he's speaking. And he's not making it so that you can't understand it. And so again, when we become believers, we're giving spiritual eyes and, and a, you know, spiritual ears, we're giving a way to understand these things. Answers to the W questions can usually be obtained from historical and cultural backgrounds, and the how questions are usually answered inductively. So that's the first test, exegesis. The second test is hermeneutics. Used in the narrow sense, the task seeks to find out the contemporary relevance of ancient text. It's about asking questions of the Bible's meaning in the here and now. But again, be careful. You can never begin the interpretive task there. The only proper control, and they write this sentence from that book, the only proper control for hermeneutics is to be found in the exegesis. In other words, again, going back to what was the original intent for the writing. And only then can we determine what does it mean now. You cannot properly understand the here and now unless you properly understand the there and then. Everybody with me so far? We're good? I know it's warm. I know this is... There are many groups who err on this critical point because their hermeneutics is not controlled by good exegesis. And I'll give you some examples. Mormons baptize the dead. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the deity of Jesus. Snake handlers misapply Mark 16, 18, and obviously with disastrous consequences. Prosperity or word of faith preachers advocate the American dream as a Christian right. So we want to know what the Bible means for us today, but we cannot make it mean whatever we want it to mean. I'll say that again. We want to know what the Bible means for us today, and it speaks to us today. It's living and active, the Bible says, right? But we cannot make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Again, same rule. I'm going to repeat it again. A text cannot mean what it could have never meant for its original readers and hearers. Now, there is some reality to text speaking to you at different times of your life. In other words, a text can have a power and an application to you that really speaks to your circumstance. And that's, that's, you know, that's relevant. And so in some sense, you, know, you can read a text at one time in your life and you can read it at a different time and it can speak to you in a different way. But it cannot mean, you cannot just take a text and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. That's misapplication of scripture. And throughout history, evil people have used scripture to manipulate the masses uh, to, to really defend all sorts of things that were not, were clearly uh, misinterpretations. So start with exegesis, follow up with herme hermeneutics. If you re reverse that order, you risk misunderstanding the text. And understand again, prayer and the Holy Spirit. 
In the, in the Haley Bible Handbook, which was first printed in 1924, though this could have been written yesterday, it says this, and it's an amazing little book. It's, it's been around. They keep adding to it. I don't know if we have it in the back, but we can, we can certainly get it. It, he, it makes this, uh, this uh, paragraph. The church and the Bible go together. The church exists to proclaim and exalt the Christ of the Bible and for nothing else. A church that does not enthrone the Bible and the lives of its people is false to its mission. The Bible is not just a text or a pretext and a book for preachers and teachers. It is a book for the people, for all the people. And preachers and teachers who build on any other foundation must not be surprised if their work in the end proves to be very superficial. With all of our facilities for propagating Christian truth, with the well-organized churches and Bible schools, with the seminaries and the highly trained ministers and church leaders, with the last word in up-to-date religious education, an endless amount of Christian literature, and an ever-increasing number of meetings and organizations where we talk and teach and preach in the name of the Bible, even quoting chapter and verse, yet the great body of church members treat the Bible as if it were a side issue in their lives. They are willing, provided enough pressure is put on them, to listen to preachers and leaders talk of the Bible, but as for reading it themselves, only a few do it. Of a hundred average church members, perhaps one would know the name of the Bible books or have an idea of what each book is about. More than three-fourths of our American, now again, this is in 1924, but more than three-fourths of our American Protestant church members could not tell where to find the Sermon of the Mount or the Ten Commandments. On an average, less than one-third of a congregation's professed membership attend at Sunday services with regularity. It is not something sadly lacking in methods that are producing churches that are largely of the Laodicean type, that is indifferent, half-hearted, lukewarm, and worldly-minded. I marvel that church people are so indifferent to the book that tells them about their Savior. And then he goes on to say, every Christian ought to be a Bible reader. It is the one habit which, if done in the right spirit, more than anything else, will make a Christian what he ought to be in every way. If any church would get its people as a whole to be devoted readers of the Word of God, it would revolutionize the church. And if churches in any community as a whole could get their people to be readers of the Bible, it would not only revolutionize the church, but it would revolutionize the community as nothing else could do. It was the discovery of a Bible by Martin Luther and its release to the people that brought, that brought forth the Protestant Reformation that proclaimed liberty to the modern world, one of the mightiest steps forward in human, in human progress known in all of history. Now, I know that sounds like an indictment, but I read this to challenge us, and me first, to again hear and respond to this message. If after you hear this sermon, you say, well, I liked that, or there was some good information there, or, you know, that was helpful, but none of us have a renewed interest in Bible study, then the sermon was a complete failure. Because again, what did we say a few weeks ago? Information 
In order for information to lead to transformation, we need application. In order for information to lead to transformation, we need application. If we don't apply this, you know, we can have all the knowledge in the world, but wisdom is, is applied knowledge, right? I know and I am confident that the Spirit of God is at work in this place. And I know and I'm confident that he'll continue his work. But I read this to challenge each of us and to those among us the most provoked. I challenge us first to respond with obedience and surrender to the promptings of God. I love you with all my heart and I want what's best for you. And I want you to fill yourselves with that which nurtures you. I spent most of my life filling myself with the things that didn't nurture, and it almost killed me, and it certainly hurt everyone around me. So I want to take a moment to make an important point, entirely relevant to what we're talking about. The reason you are seeing the church have less and less influence on the culture is that in far too many churches, the Bible has less and less influence in the church. The reason that the church is not influencing culture and the reason that the church is losing her power is because for too many churches, the Bible has lost its place, its authority. The kids learned this past week what a healthy church should look like using the acronym CATCH at the kids' camp. C-A-T-C-H, connect. We're called to connect with other believers. Accept, we're called to accept Jesus in our lives. Treasure, we're called to treasure other people like God treasures. You know, I said all the time, I pray all the time, give me a heart like Jesus. And people think, oh, that's so sweet, Pastor prays to get a heart like Jesus. It's because I don't have a heart like Jesus. It's because I don't see people the way he sees them. It's because by default, I can be judgmental and arrogant, and I can write people off, and I can decide, well, God can work in that guy's life, but no. And I don't want to do that. So I need to pray, and I need to say, Lord, let me see people the way you see them. And I, I, sincerely, I do that. T, treasure. Treasure people the way God treasures them. C, challenge. We need to rely on God's strength to press on and keep going. It's okay to be challenged. H, honor. Honor has to do with who we are when nobody's looking. What goes into our lives comes out. What are we filling ourselves with? If we're filling ourselves with Jesus, then he's what people see. We want to overflow with him. All South Coast Community Church can offer you. And if, it's, if you're part of a different church, all any church can offer you is the word of God and the spirit of God. And so if you're not part of a, of a good Bible-believing church, find one. If you are, praise God. But the only power the church have is given by God to the believer who worships in spirit and in truth. Find a church that has a high view of Scripture. That should be the number one prerequisite in finding a church. A high view of Scripture. In other words, Scripture's the authority, not man, not culture. The weakness of the so-called churches today is they've become gatherings of people who come to hear motivational speeches with enough spiritual lingo thrown in to make people think it's a church. But if the Bible has no authority, then it's not a church. The most important thing, find a place where the word of God is held with the highest regard. If that's not the case, then there exists no objective truth to build your life upon. God created us 
we don't create God. Look for a church. Seek a, a body of believers where the gospel's preached, where you as an individual can have a personal relationship with the Lord, and we can enjoy, where you can join in biblical ministries that are spreading the gospel and that are glorifying God. Church is important, and all believers need to belong to a body that fits the above criteria. We as Christians need relationships that can only be found in the body of believers. We need the support that only a church can offer. We need to serve God in a community as well as individually. Praise the Lord this morning for Sheila. When I talked to her and she said, you know, I'm going to go to church because, you know, where else would I go? That's my spiritual family. Praise God for that. Because that's the kind of relationship we need to have. That's the sign of a healthy church. When in the midst of great difficulty, rather than leave God and run away from him and isolate, we gather together in the presence of God. That's what we ought to do. Pick a church on the basis of its relationship to Christ, on how well it's serving the community where the pastor preaches the gospel without fear. Christ and his church is about your relationship to him and to each other. And so as believers, there are basic doctrines we must believe. But beyond that, there is good latitude on how we can serve in worship. And that's the only good reason for denominations. That that's diversity and not disunity. We are non-denominational here. We are affiliated with the Evangelical Free Church of America, but we're non-denominational. And, and, and what we say is that we, are, we major in the majors and we minor in the minors. That means there are things we're willing to discuss but not divide over. That means there are core Christian doctrines we hold to, but in matters that are secondary, in other words, in things that are not pertaining to salvation, there's leeway. There's people who hold different secondary views, and we've decided, well, we're not going to divide over those things. We'll talk about them. Because we have to remember to not put God in a box. God is bigger than our, our understanding of him. And doctrine and theology, those things matter. Those things are important. The Bible is the authority. But there are some things that are, that are not clear. And, there, and we need to be gracious because in what you and I think, somewhere along the line, we're flawed. There's something in the way I see God. There's something in my theology that's flawed because we see a glass darkly. We don't have full revelation, so we need to be really humble. Now, that's not to say that's not, that there's not things that are clearly false teaching. That's not the point I'm making. I'm talking about in secondary matters. Many people today understand the church is a building, but that's not a biblical understanding of a church. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which is an assembly, which is called out ones. So the root meaning of church is not that of a building, but that of a people. We are the church. The body of Christ made up of all believers in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until Christ's return. According to the Bible, the church is the body of Christ, is all those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. The body of Christ is comprised of two aspects. The universal church consists of all of those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This verse says that anyone who believes is part of the body of Christ and has received the spirit of Christ as evidence. So the universal church of God is all those who have received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then there's the local church described in Galatians 1, uh, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Here we see Paul's writing that in Galatia, in the province of Galatia, there were many local churches, local bodies. So Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, non-denominational, that's not the church as in the universal church, but that's the local church, a local body of believers. So there's one universal church, there's one true church, and that's comprised of those who belong to Christ and have trusted in him, and within that, many denominations. These members of the universal church should, should seek fellowship and edification in a local church. The local church is where the members of the body can fully apply these, these body principles of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we can encourage and teach and build up one another in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this is entirely relevant to our conversation about the Bible because again, if the Bible is not the ultimate authority, then man is. And we see man's opinion shifts with culture. God's objective truth transcends man's opinion. And all of the problems of a church losing credibility happen not from misinterpreting as much as from trying to reinterpret through the lens of culture instead of viewing culture through the lens of scripture. In other words, we see what's happening in the world and we try, to, we try to understand the Bible through what's happening in the world rather than the other way around. And that's a huge mistake. Again, our authority will always be Scripture, not what I think or what, ja what Jamie thinks. And now, I want to mention here that people should feel comfortable to question what I say or what I teach or reach out for clarity. I make mistakes. I've made mistakes. And I'm grateful that when I do, we have a body where people want to pick up the phone or send an email and say, hey, Pastor Brian, you know, you said this and, you know, I have a, an issue and I can give either a little more context or I can say, you know what, I, you know, that was wrong or whatever. But I'm, I'm not, you know, above reproach by any means. And so, again, we're all students of Scripture. We're all students of the Bible, and I stand here humbly. And so if I ever say or do anything that you, you question or are unsure of, please feel free to reach out. And I'm grateful that people feel comfortable enough to do that. That's important. And so the reason the church has lost our power is because we look for influence in worldly things instead of spiritual things. We think that the church gets its power if we have fancy buildings with comfortable seats, with celebrity preachers, with amazing worship bands, with coffee shops and glossy brochures and great advertising campaigns. We try to build the church like we build a franchise. That is not what makes a church healthy. And don't get me wrong when people say it's not about numbers, it's absolutely about numbers. Because numbers are souls. So it is about numbers. But Jesus changed the world with 12. Now, I'm not against the mega church by any stretch of the imagination. 
But if there are 20,000 people in your church on a Sunday and you are not radically changing the community around you, there's something wrong with that. I would rather walk this out, this Christian walk, with 10 people sold out for Jesus than with 10,000 who are lukewarm or indifferent. I have no interest, and Jesus had no uh, interest in building a brand or in gaining fair-weather friends. When the crowds got bigger, Jesus said things to make them shrink. Why? Because he wanted followers, not fans. And this doesn't mean that, I'm, that we're perfect. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about a commitment to allow the word of God and the spirit of God full access. And my promise is that if you do that, you become part of an authentic transformational community that will turn your life upside down in the best way possible. And hopefully that's what we're doing. Bear with me, I'm getting close to the end. I know it's warm. When we look at a church building or a new ministry, we should be spending more time praying, reading the word, and seeking the will of God. Discussing it with other believers, realizing the majority of the work we need to do is spiritual work. Remember last week we read about how Martha was anxious and distracted and worried while, Jesus, uh, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet just listening? She knew what was most important. So let's be led by him. Yes, we need to plan. Yes, we need to organize. But we also need to spend time in the spiritual realm, praying. In addition to being able to stand up to temptation on our own by knowing the word, right? That's what Jesus did. When Jesus was tempted, he responded with the word of God. So us as individuals, when we're tempted, we need to know the word of God. But as a local church as well, in order to stand up and resist culture, we need as a church to know the word of God, to understand what God teaches. Too many people in the church today are biblically illiterate, and so it's no wonder that cultural views prevail even in the house of God. There was a new pastor who was asked to teach the junior high boys Sunday school class in absence of the regular teacher. So he decided he wanted to see what they knew And so he asked them, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? All the boys denied having done it, and the preacher was appalled by their ignorance. (laughs) At the next elders' meeting, he told them about the experience. Not one of them knows who knocked down the walls of Jericho, the pastor lamented. The group was silent until finally one seasoned elder spoke up. Preacher, this appears to be bothering you a lot, but I've known all these boys since they were born, and they're all good boys. If they said they didn't do it, I believe them. Let's just take some money out of the maintenance fund, let's fix the walls, and let it go at that. It's a sad commentary, funny, but sad commentary on Bible knowledge in the church. The goal of biblical interpretation is to determine the author's original intended meaning and how it applies to us today so that we can proclaim its truth to others. Interpretation must be done in that order. We cannot accurately proclaim the truth to others if we don't know what the truth means to us. Likewise, we cannot properly apply the scripture to our lives without understanding of the author's original intent. Inerrancy, infallibility, and authority. Observation, interpretation, and application. 
what do I see? What does it mean? And how should I respond? How, how should I live this out? Instruction or teaching isn't just about heavenly things, but about practical things like being a good spouse, being a good parent. Three words that'll help us. Remember I told you every time I preached, I was going to give you a sentence. How to apply the, Bible's, uh, the Bible to your life. Three words, live like Jesus. There was a story of Mother Teresa. There was a reporter, and he wanted to follow her around for a while to understand why she did what she did. And so he asked her, he said, you know, can I, can I follow you around for a few months, and then I'm going to write an article and just explain to people why you do what you do. And she said, well, you know, how long do you want to follow me? And he said, you know, probably four or five months. And he, so she said, so for that time, you're going to go everywhere I go. And he said, well, yes. And she says, well, you know, that'll be very expensive. And he said, well, that's okay. It doesn't matter. And she said, well, not only is that going to cost a lot, but you're going to have to do what I tell you to do. And this could take a very long time. And he agreed. He said that that's fine. She stopped and she looked at him in the face and she said, take all that money, every penny that you would have spent, give it to the poor and spend the rest of your life serving people wherever and whenever you can. And then you'll understand why I do what I do. You see, sometimes the best way to gain understanding is to begin to live it out, and God will show us as we do it. Jesus came to serve. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'm going to close with this. One of the most powerful things that Jesus did on earth was not something he said but it was one of the last things he did. And I cannot imagine being in that room. Even the disciples did not understand. In John 13, Scripture says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's a beautiful statement that gives such context. Jesus knew that his time had come. He was with people that he had loved the whole time, and he still had a deep love for them. Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, it's not enough to just know what to do. Again, in order for information to lead to transformation, we need application. The big question, I imagine at that moment that room was dead silent because the big question was why hadn't anybody done that? It was customary. They would never have eaten you know, they didn't have tables and chairs. They all sat down in the ground with your feet next to the other guy's plate. They didn't eat 
with all dirty feet. But the implication is that all those men in that room, having spent all that time with Jesus and having heard everything he said and watched everything he did, not one of them offered to wash anyone's feet because each of them thought it was beneath them. And so can you imagine what it must have felt from them the minute they saw Jesus stand up? Because Jesus knew one of the last things he was going to do, the power in that lesson, realizing they still don't get it. And they objected to it. And Jesus said, you don't understand. You will. What do we do? Small groups serve the homeless, one-on-one discipleship. We have outreach, we partner with local churches, we do recovery work, we help people with divorces, financial trouble, relationship issues, people that are single, struggling in marriage, kids, addicted, that's discipleship. It doesn't have to be a program to be service. So I'm gonna close with steps to take, and the kids are gonna be coming up in a minute. First, buy a good study Bible. If you can't afford one, speak to me after church, I'll buy you one. Step two, pray. Step three, read said Bible. You know, I got 30 Bibles at home. They're no good, none of them. I got leather bound and I got calf skin and I got, they're beautiful. But they're no good if I don't read them. Begin with John, read through the Gospels, move on to Paul's letters. Get in the habit of reading scripture, of studying scripture. Have prayer time and quiet time. Have devotional reading, even if it's a verse or two. Like I said, don't read, you know, just take a little section, a little sentence, a paragraph, study, meditate on that. Bible reading and Bible study are separate things. You should be doing both. Pray, pray, pray. Here's a few things to look for. I'm closing with this. I know I keep saying that, but now I really mean it. Here's a few things to look for when reading scripture. A special message from God for today. A command to keep. A promise from God. An eternal principle. An application for my life. After you've found a special message or command or promise or principle, ask yourself, how can I apply this to an area of my life? The study of God's word is not just for obtaining knowledge, but it's a practical tool that when properly applied will change your life. All of us are called to grow up and mature in the Lord. And we cannot do that without his word. Amen. At this time I'm going to have the kids come up. I don't see. Where's my wife? 